Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. I have, I have the wonderful Ken Quiethawk to thank for that beautiful intro. You can find him on nativestorytellers.com. And his voice is all over there um, <clears throat> with wonderful stories as well. Welcome, everybody, to Nightlight. I'm Barb DeLong, and uh, tonight's a, a kind of cool night. I get to play backseat for, for, for an unusual show. Tonight we're going to be talking about Mothman and the Mothman Festival that's going to be taking place on September 15th and 16th in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And this is a subject, while I have heard about it, I am definitely not an expert so I am going to turn the reins of host over tonight to a, a good friend of mine who I've worked with for a number of years. I'm going to pull Mark Eddy in here, and I'm going to hand the reins over to him so that, so that he can sort of guide us through understanding Mothman, the Mothman um, legend, and the festival that is, that is coming up. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Barbara. Thanks. How, how, how are you doing? Doing well tonight, thank you. Good, yeah, here we are again. Yes. (laughs) We aren't competing, we're actually uh, collaborators, which is kind of what we've always been anyways, but uh, yeah, we're just uh, working together to bring a fascinating subject to your listeners. Yeah, and, and happily, I have no problem turning the reins over to you and just working the switchboard for you. So please educate us on Mothman and the festival and, and everything that goes with it. Okay, well, you know, we have two e- experts joining us. I'm just a, a fan and a patron, but, uh, you know, I really appreciate this opportunity of you bringing me on board uh, for exploration of a diversity of topics well i have i have absolutely i have i have no problem admitting i don't know about something so i am delighted that you are here yeah uh, well we have uh two 
in, insightful researchers on the subject. And uh, you know, for the first hour, we have Jeff Walmsley, and I'm sure a lot of people saw him as uh, a commentator on a few episodes of the History Channel's uh, Monster Quest, where you know they were focusing on you know Mothman. They were kind of doing some experiments with. Uh, uh, perspectives of what people saw as they drove past, uh, you know, like statues. You know, so, you know, we'll, uh, Jeff will talk talk about that in, in just a second. But um, you know, Jeff is also uh, the author of uh, Mothman Behind the Red Eyes and Mothman Facts Behind the Legends. Uh, he's you know producer of the Mothman Festival and curator of the world's only Mothman Museum in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So, hi Jeff, welcome to Nightlight. Thanks for having me on. Can you hear me? Oh yeah. Okay, cool. Sounds great. Okay, uh, I'm looking forward to returning to the Mothman Festival on... September 15th and 16th. You also have like a little preview on the 14th as well, correct? Right, yeah. Yeah, we started doing that because over the past few years, it seems like a lot of people are coming to town, you know, on Friday, at least Friday afternoon and evening. So, you know, a lot of the people that come to the festival are from out of town. So we Mm -hmm. thought it'd be kind of nice to have a couple things for them in the evening there on Friday. And then, of course, you know, Saturday's usually the busiest day of the two. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday uh, kind of winds down around 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Jeff, I have to I, – let me, let me interrupt just a second. Sure. Jeff, mm-hmm. you've got a hum. Do you want to try hanging up and calling back in so we don't have the hum on you? Well, I don't think that hum's going to go away because uh, we've tried to have our phone. We live out in the country a little ways here. And that's something that I've had to live with for the past five or six years, thanks then to uh, AT and T. We will live. We will live with the hum as yeah. well. Yeah, and okay. I hear it. I'm used to it, so you know. It, but, it, uh, it, it, it's the dastardly men in black trying yeah, to probably. interfere with the, the show. <laughs> They're trying to sabotage my sh- the, the show again. So soldier on, guys. But, yeah. <laughs> But it, and you know, really, you have you know downtown uh, pretty much blocked off, and yeah. you have food vendors, uh, you know, games for the uh, you know uh, little ones, you know, uh, other activities for what uh, you know the teenagers. Uh, uh, you know the lineup of speakers you have is you know really terrific. The, you know, uh, all, all of them would appeal to you know just about any uh, right. you know, uh, uh, any age group. So it, it's really a whole family e- event. Like what, uh, all all the stores are open uh, downtown right. as well. Yeah, the initial uh, when we started the festival back in. 2003, 2004, I can't remember what year it was, but, uh, you know, the initial 
fought for that festival was to get people to come down to Main Street, you know, kind of shop in the in the local stores and things like that. Which which is that's still the the main focus. It's just that, you know there's so many people that come to the festival. You know, we've had to block off about five blocks downtown, um, which is a good thing. You know, the, the biggest issue is is usually the parking and the traffic can kind of get pretty gnarly there on on Saturday especially but um you know the festival grows a little bit each year you know we 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 try to add new things and things that appeal to a little bit of every everybody's taste um like like you said we a lot of diverse type food vendors we bring in it's not just uh, the hamburgers and fries you know we got all kinds of different different types of food and guest speakers we try to mix it up a little bit a little bit of history a little bit of paranormal stuff mothman stuff ufos uh, men in black that kind of stuff and then of course we have live bands that play both days on the riverfront stage um again we mix it up a little bit it can be anything from classic rock to bluegrass to country you know so we try to try to have a little bit of something for everybody okay and you know the Mothman Museum is uh, open, you know, probably has extended hours. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, of course, the Mothman Museum is not a huge museum, so it, it gets a little packed, too. So, But uh, we try to stay open a little bit later, especially on Saturday. You know, we're open year-round every day, uh, except for holidays and stuff like that. So, But, um, yeah, that's that's a main attraction, you know, for for the downtown area, of course, the Mothman statue sits right beside the museum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, you know, I was just going to say after you know, tour the museum, uh, get uh, shirts, and you, know, you, you can, uh, just walk next door and right. stand in the little uh, like island and get get your photo taken with a. Yep, steel famous statue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the steel statue <laughs> of Mothman. Now that's called Gun Park, is what that's called. Okay, okay and, Gun and that's Park. Uh, that's a little historical park there. Of course, the Mothman statue's been up there since 2003, I think. And um, but yeah, that's a big attraction. Um, like I said, the Riverfront Park. Uh, but we have some really cool vendors too. You know, that mm-hmm. bring all kinds of Mothman-related stuff and. It's uh, you know, it's turned into a pretty good thing for the vendors too, you know, because they can show off their talents and their merchandise. Well, uh, uh, you do have a lot of uh, local artists selling, you know, their their prints and paintings right. of uh, you know, d- d- different poses of Mothman and you know, it's, uh, different settings yeah. as well. And it's not really all local. I mean, there are some local people there, but there's there's people that come from all over the country, really, you know, just to to be the vendor in the vendor areas and stuff. Um, what we do like to, you know, show off the local vendors and local bands and stuff like that, you know, uh, just to kind of promote them a little bit, you know, since they are from the Point Pleasant area and stuff. But uh, yeah, there's we have, you know a lot of people come from all over the country all over the world really i mean you know um you know it just it just depends on what country <laughs> okay and so when you know in between speakers you know if they want to you know, 
uh, go through the Mothman Museum, they're, they're going to see some interesting collections of, you know, like, uh, John Keel's actual uh, type letters to some of right. the uh, people in, in the uh, community. You, you know, you have props from the Mothman Prophecies movie. Right. The, yeah. The, uh, so uh, what else are people going to see when they they stop in at the museum? Well, like you said, you know, we've got a lot of rare archives. A lot of those came from some of the original witnesses, like Linda Scarberry, uh, original police reports, uh, costumes, a lot of movie props, uh, newspaper archives, a lot of Silver Bridge disaster archives, UFOs, Men in Black, um, you know, some documentaries and stuff will be playing in there. The gift shop is in the front area, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of almost like a museum slash research center in a way, because you know a lot of people will go in and read a lot of those those newspaper archives or watch the documentaries and things like that, you know. Um, and then some people just come in and look through and then leave. But I mean, it just depends, you know. Some people are are a little more into it than than you know maybe somebody just passing by or whatever. But um, you know we. Uh, we try to have you know a lot of stuff that you're just not normally going to see anywhere else, you know. Yeah, I was really impressed with you actually had you know the type letters that right. John sent. Uh, you know, you have his uh, a coat that yeah. he wore. Uh, you. you you know, are, are are there some artifacts, letters that you know of that you're trying to get a hold of? Like, you know, what else is out there that you don't ha- have at the museum? Well, like you you mentioned, there, there's still a lot of John Keel stuff that um, that is is you know in other parts of the country and things like that. And a lot of the ones that we have the the uh, typed letters and stuff were all sent to those witnesses, you know, those original witnesses and stuff. Um, and I still have more that we haven't displayed yet. You know, we just haven't had the room to display them and stuff. So, um, you know, I know that uh, Doug Skinner, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he he still has a lot of those archives that John Keel had uh, because he was friends with John Keel. And, you know, if you go to, like, johnkeel.com, a lot of that stuff is on there. Um, some of those news or those uh, letters were sent to witnesses. Some were sent to Mary Hire, who was the writer, the local writer for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that you know uh, somebody out there's you know got some pretty rare stuff, um, and you know it'll pop up every now and then. I'll get people to bring things into the museum, and and that's how we get some of the stuff too. But uh, we're always I'm always always looking for some some pretty cool rare stuff. Are are you uh, managing the museum by yourself, or do you have a board of directors? Um, pretty much, it's it's a it's a museum that I created. You know, um, I've I've got you know employees. You know, I don't I I teach graphic design full time. You know, at the local technical center, career tech center. So that's that's what I do. You know, full time. But but in the spare time, which is very little. Um, 
you know, I try to keep that museum going. You know, my wife uh, helps run it, and then I've got a couple employees and stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, in, in order to be open every day of the week. You know, you, I, I can't be in two places at the same time. So, but uh, you know, it, it's we. I started that museum in 2006, so it's year by year. It's just gained more momentum and stuff. As a matter of fact, we're we're probably going to be uh, expanding the museum a little bit here in the next few months into uh, you know another show area room and stuff. So we're we're kind of planning, making some plans on that right now. Okay. So, um, it, it's well worth the the visit. I, I, I well, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And I, how how did you get all the like Laura Lenny's uh, police officer uh, jacket and mm-hmm. you know the props from the movie? How, how did you get? Well, whenever that movie came out in uh, 2002, you know they filmed that movie in Catanning, Pennsylvania. A lot of people think that they filmed the movie in Point Pleasant. Uh, a lot of the documentaries, like you mentioned, you know, they, they filmed in Point Pleasant, but the actual movie with Richard Gere was filmed in Catanning, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> so um, after that movie was filmed, I met a guy from Catanning, Pennsylvania, who uh, collected a lot of the movie props. He had a huge collection of the, the props from the movie because he he lived there, and he was he was just, uh, you know, fascinated by the whole deal, you know, the, the experience of them filming mm-hmm. the movie in his hometown. So he uh, approached me about coming to the festival in those early years of the festival and bringing those props. His name was uh, Butch Kane, and I think he still lives there in Catanning. Him and uh, Bernie Bowser was the other guy. Um, and they would come to the festival and bring those props and put them on display, you know, for people to see. Then after the after the festival's over, this was before the museum was open. Uh, they would take those movie props back to Catanning and then store them and storage and stuff like that. Um, and then it came up to about all oh, 2000, probably 2005 or 2006. I can't remember what year he. I had called him to make arrangements for them to come to the festival, and his schedule um, and his business just wouldn't allow him. So. He uh, he offered to donate those to uh, the, you know to to myself and Carolyn Harris, who I started uh, the, the festival with. She passed away about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, so that was the catalyst, pretty much, for the museum because you know where else are you going to get that many movie props from the Mothman Prophecy? So that's how I that's how I acquired those movie props was. Through a, a private in the individual who collected those up there in Catani. Okay. And, and of course, I, I still look on eBay and you know the internet and stuff like that. People have stuff all the time, you know, that they'll put up for, on auction and things like that. So that's how we end up getting some of that stuff. Okay, and and you, know, you have the Monster Quest uh, uh, props as yeah. well. And, and yeah. uh, like I said at the beginning, like they were used to. Uh, gauge how how people's perspectives right. of sizes uh, changed as they drove past. Uh, can, can you explain what you have on display there in the uh, gift shop? 
Yeah, that those were actually there was a local artist that when Monster Quest come to film that um, a local artist did those cutouts. Uh, Jan Haddix was his name, and uh, that was an experiment I think that Joe Knuckles or I think it was Joe Nichols, Joe Knuckles. I can't. Uh, sorry, Joe, if I mispronounced your name. Um, but he was on the show, and what they did is they wanted to make different size cutouts of what looked like, you know, this Mothman creature. You know, one was like three feet tall, one was four foot tall, six foot, you know, and they placed those out in the field up there in the TNT area, which, by the way, is where a lot of the Mothman sightings took place. Um, and they conducted an experiment where people would drop by. They, they didn't know that these stand-ups were in the field, and then they would point them out to them, drive by real quick, and then they had to write down, you know, wh- how tall they thought it was or how big. And that was just to show that in the heat of the moment, sometimes people can exaggerate, you know, or see something that they really didn't see. So we still have those. Those those were left behind, you know, from when they filmed that, and we, we put those in the in the museum and stuff, so... But uh, that 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 would be you know sort of like a, a a movie prop in a way, but it's just more of a TV show prop. So, you know, we should probably get into um, you know the first sight sighting. What? Uh-huh. How did everything kick off with the modern? understanding of you know, Mothman, we can probably get into Chief Cornstalk uh, later, de- definitely with Nick, but uh, right, you, right. You know, how, how did you know, the, the modern uh, Mothman legend start? Well, the, the first uh, sightings took, here in Point Pleasant took place back in November of 1966. Um, at that time, you know, a lot of the kids would uh, go up to the TNT area, which is about nine miles north of downtown Point Pleasant. Uh, during World War II, that was an ammunition depot that was created to manufacture explosives for World War II. Um, after the war ended, the government basically just abandoned all the buildings and left the buildings and things like that. So in the 60s, it was a place where the kids, and even today, the kids would run around and you know drag race, and it was like a lover's lane type thing. Um, but the story in Point Pleasant started. It was two young couples, and and where my connection comes in is that the one couple were our neighbors, uh, Linda Scarberry and Roger Scarberry. They lived on 30th Street, you know, where my family lived. Um, even though I was only five years old, um, as I got older, I I looked into the story a little more, but. They and another couple uh, were up in the TNT area just riding around. Um, Roger had a a 57 Chevy. You know, they were up there hot rodding and riding around. And, um, you know, it it was getting getting a little bit late, about 11 o'clock at night. And as they were coming coming back, they saw a figure standing in the road as they were approaching one of the old North Power Plant up there. And they just thought it was just somebody standing in the road, you know. Uh, As they got closer... Linda said, you know, they, they looked and, and saw that it looked bigger than a man, a little taller, but it looked like it had wings wrapped around its back, you know, kind of up behind its head. And as they got even closer in the car, she said the wings spread out, 
and she noticed that it had two distinct red eyes about the size of baseballs. And she said it ran towards that north power plant. Um, they were a little concerned. Of course, they really didn't know what it was. And then they took off and went started heading towards town. And as they got on Route 62 coming back into town, she said it came over top of the car. Um, and that lasted for probably a good mile or two. And uh, that that's what kind of scared them. You know, they were they were hitting some some pretty high speeds coming down the road, and she said it stayed right over top of the car. Um, disappeared once they got into the city limits. Uh, they decided to go to the sheriff's department and tell them what had happened. That was the beginning of about a two-year period where there was all kinds of different witnesses, uh, you know, prominent business people, teachers, young people, older people. So it wasn't just four, you know, young or you're just two young couples it was it was a lot more than that and um a lot of different theories as to what it was i mean a lot of the people described it as standing about six to seven foot tall sort of grayish in color uh and a wingspan of about 10 to 12 feet which is abnormal for any uh, regular sized bird um some people thought it was just a big sandhill crane or some sort of a bird maybe that got uh you know, mutated by some of the waste up there in the TNT area. So it was kind of a perfect scenario for, you know, a monster up there in the TNT area. Um, over 100 reported sightings within a year and a half. Now, that's reported sightings. So there, there's always my theory that there were a lot of people who didn't report anything to the authorities because people just were afraid of being called crazy, you know. Right. Um, I still have people who come into the museum to this day, you know, older people that will tell me, they say, you know, we saw that thing, but we were afraid to tell anybody because it would, you know, word would get around fast that we were all nuts and stuff. So, um, but that's that in a nutshell is how it started. And uh, it's it's grown. John Keel's book, you know, he came to town to investigate all this stuff and, he collaborated with the witnesses and some of the local newspaper people, and then, of course, you know, his book, The Mothman Prophecies, came out, you know, 1975, and that kind of opened the floodgates for for the Mothman story. And then, of course, the movie, the documentaries, the TV shows, and the festival, and all that. So it's it's turned into a, basically a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, you know, Jeff is. Um the you, know, you, you just covered the TNT area, and you, know, you also mentioned the power plant. It, it, mm-hmm. Is there uh, some kind of connection where the Mothman could have been living at uh, you know the TNT place or doing something? At the power plant, it, it, you know, why is he associated with th- these two? Uh, almost like energy type right. areas. Well, you know, at the time in the 1960s, there was no active uh, operations going on there. You know, with with the military or anything. But yeah, people thought whatever it was, if it was some sort of a gigantic bird or creature or whatever 
you know, that this was a, a perfect environment for it because, you know, those abandoned buildings, the power the north power plant was about three stories tall, and it was all concrete catwalks inside um, because it was a factory building, you know. It wasn't an office building. It was a factory building, and it was huge. And um, people were seeing it on top of that building, inside of the building, and around the building. But, you know, there were there were sightings in other places, though. You know, there was even sightings across the river, you know, uh, and, you know in Gallipolis and Canalga and places like that. Um, you know, there were, there were people seeing stuff in different areas of the tri-state area. But Point Pleasant kind of became the hub, you know, for most of the sightings and stuff. But, uh, you know, the whenever I said North Power Plant, what, what I meant by that was is that during World War II, that, that plant generated the power to all the buildings and the operational facilities and stuff up there. But uh, that's what people thought. I mean, they just they thought, well, this thing, and even the locals just named it the Big Bird. And that building up there, they called it the Birdhouse. So when I, when you know when I was younger, you hear people say, "Yeah, up there at the a birdhouse," and you know they were talking about that big North Power Plant building in the TNT area. Okay, and it, it, you know, back to the festival again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there there are going to be. Uh, it's probably going to be more convenient to go on the bus tours to take you out to the TNT place is that is that right well if you're not real familiar with it you know it's the bus tours have a, have a nice uh, advantage because number one they're air conditioned you don't have to worry about getting lost you know you got somebody driving you up there and we got a couple tour guides that will take you into the bunkers and let you look around and things like that and then you know maybe later go back on a different time by yourself or whatever um the actual bus tours go to the to the igloos area. Um, the North Power Plant was torn down in the early 90s. Um, the, the the state of West Virginia owned that property, and they came in and tore down a lot of those buildings and stuff. But uh, you know you can still go to the same spot where the those sightings took place. And the TNT area was, is is about 3,000 acres. I mean it's a huge area and uh, it kind of serves as a wildlife preserve now and uh, a bird sanctuary and all that kind of stuff so there's no like i said no operational military things going on up there right now Um, but during the 60s what happened was is they did contaminate a lot of the ground up there and it's no secret that it was it's an it was and it still is an epa cleanup site you know that area up there so uh, that kind of brings in the, the theory of mutated animals or birds and things like that too. So, right. Okay, I, I, that, that's reasonable. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that just kind of leads me to another aspect of Mason County, uh, West Virginia. Is it, it's really a uh, uh, beautiful county. Uh, yeah. You know, little rolling hills. Yeah. Uh, but but it's actually very isolated. It's, you know, interstate really isn't even close uh, to the area, and e- even on the Ohio side, mm-hmm. there's not 
in Interstate all all that uh, clo- well thir- thirty five. Uh, yeah, that's about uh, it. <laughs> with, but but uh, you know, it's, it's just really uh, you, know, uh, you have to take you know kind of more like a lot of the back roads to get there. It's yeah. uh, not very well or, or it's sparsely populated. Yeah, you know, yeah, it really it, hasn't changed a whole lot since the '60s, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, per, well, like, like almost like the 1860s. It, it's just yeah. you know, very agricultural. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really nice people. You know, it's have you yeah. know, Point Pleasant's kind of like a little, like uh, a Mayberry type thing. Yeah, a riverside, uh, you know, town that mm-hmm. you, you expect to see uh, paddle boats uh, going by. You know, like right. that, you know, Huck Finn type thing. It it it, it is a really nice uh, uh, county, but. It, you know, could something survive like I, I don't know, like a you know a little baby pterodactyl survive? Well, you know the, that's interesting because you know some there's been some people that I've talked to that mentioned you know that they saw this thing in broad daylight and they said it looked almost like a prehistoric bird. You know that's I've had a few people tell me that because of the size of it and mm-hmm. the way it flew, you know the way it glided over their car or whatever. So that's that's been brought up, you know, the pterodactyl type type stuff. You know, who knows? I mean, um, you know, I don't think anybody will ever be able to to really fully explain, you know, what what people were seeing, you know. Um, but I, I just don't think that there's that many people that could make up the same description, the same story, you know. There was a lot of people seeing it, and there was a lot of people describing it about the same way. Well, in the late '60s, uh, there wasn't the you know, Facebook where yeah, you know, right. everyone can you know just send out you know mass message right. To, right. and say oh hey I want to say you know it's like this is the wingspan and we'll get yeah. our name in the paper that wasn't even no it was more conservative back then and people were more concerned about their reputation and. And uh, like I said, a, a lot of those witnesses put up with a lot of uh, uh, people making fun of them and calling them crazy and, you know, just saying all kinds of things about And that still holds true today. That's why some of those witnesses still won't won't really talk about it. They won't discuss it with people because they just don't want to put up with the, the ridicule and the, uh, people, you know, kind of poking fun at, at the whole deal, which I think that holds true in a lot of different areas, you know, UFO witnesses and things like that. They're just, you know, they're just afraid to really open up and let anybody know what they actually experienced because, you know, people, uh, I think especially in the 60s, you know, that was a lot more conservative time than it is now. You know, somebody put that on Facebook now, everybody just kind of probably just maybe go right by it. You never know. (laughs) Probably, but yeah, you know, it's. It, it, but y- you t- said you uh, uh, grew up near um, some of the first witnesses. Uh, yeah, about four doors uh, away. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How did you know this experience change them? If you know they get, gave you a little bit more insight than. 
Well, you know, you, you have to figure like Linda and Roger were probably, I was five, they were in their late 20s or late, well, late teens. So, you know, um, Linda is the one that I talk to most, you know, for my book information and things mm-hmm. like that. She was really the only one out of the four that was willing to talk and that would talk. Uh, her husband, um, I, I, I wouldn't know if he walked walked up to me, you know. Um, they divorced after all that happened. He moved away. I've tried to contact him several times, you know, uh, with offers to, to interview and stuff like that, and he just doesn't, he's not interested. Um, the other couple are actually, actually still married, still live in Point Pleasant. Um, they admit that they saw it, but that's it. You know, they won't, they won't go into any great detail on it or anything. So, you know, I know Linda personally, you know, she put up with a lot of ridicule and, you know, suffered a lot of emotional stress over the whole thing, you know. It, you know, definitely changed her, you know, because of all the attention she got from it and stuff. So she passed away probably, yeah, four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, she used to come to the festival and, uh, you know, meet with people and things like that. Um, She was pretty open about it. She didn't enjoy talking about it or anything, but she was always pretty open about it. Okay. And um, she she also uh, noted in uh, your Mothman, the facts behind the legend, Mm -hmm. that uh, she, she thought the... Uh, she had at least a couple few sightings and she she thought um the the mothman was telepathic yeah she she claimed that you know after all that happened that she would she'd seen it numerous times now i don't know if she meant that in her mind or physically seeing it but she always thought that the thing never went away, you know, that it, it was still around. She was pretty paranoid about things, you know. Um, but she did talk about that. She she thought that whatever it was was always watching them, and, and she just felt like she was never truly going to get away from the whole, the whole experience of it, you know. I think that might have been what she meant by that in that interview. Okay. And... Uh, what did you think of uh, John Keel's portrait of a small town? He he moved there for one extended period of time yeah. to talk with the locals and de- develop de- de- develop this book. I mean, you right. know, it was a, a, very similar to like the, you know, Dickens's uh, portrayal of London. Yeah. Well, he was from from New York City, so he was he was a big city writer. But he actually lived there on 30th Street with Linda's family for a while. You know, just four doors away from our house, and uh, because he told me that you know before he passed away, I, I had the chance to meet and talk with him several times, and he said it just got too expensive for him to keep driving back from New York to Point Pleasant, because he said every time I get back to New York, they would either call or send me a telegram or whatever, no emails and no cell phones, you know. And uh, he said that they would tell him, we, hey, we saw it again, you need to get back down here. 
so in order to kind of help on his expenses and everything, uh, Linda's family um, kind of took him in and let him live there. I think he had, he lived in the basement of their house. Um, and, of course, you know, there was a few hotels that he frequented here in the area, too. But, yeah, he uh, he would hold roundtable discussions there at their house with uh, some of the local neighbor people and, and some of the witnesses and stuff. So that was that was a big deal at that time. Is, is that house still standing? It is. It's still standing. And, of course, it's went through probably two or three different owners since all that happened. Um, I drive by there. You know, my mother still lives there on 30th Street. And, uh, yeah, every time I go by that house, I always think to myself, you know, that's that's got some history behind it and stuff. The people that live in it now probably have no clue, you know, that, that the men in black were hanging around that house a lot back in the in those days and John Keel frequented that house and stuff like that. So um that's that's where Linda's parents lived and then after they passed away then the house was sold to somebody else. Okay. Uh Barbara, do you do you want to jump in with any of your insights? Well I'm just fascinated with the fact that it was just really a short period of time, a couple of years, and you know, then it sort of went away. And yet, are people still seeing it today? Him today? It today? Well, yeah, you know, there, there's people that you know claim to see it all over the world. You know, now that's kind of hard to validate that stuff. You know, if, if you're if you're not there, but of course, the movie, you know, kind of kind of pushed the the fact that. You know, people were seeing something flying around before 9/11 at Chernobyl Cher- uh-huh. and places like that. You know, again, the Mothman Prophecies book kind of, and and the movie itself too, kind of pushed that. You know that uh, hey, you know, the, the, every time something bad happens, for example, when the Silver Bridge collapsed here in 1967, people thought that that may have had been connected to you know, these Mothman sightings and stuff. You know, John Keel always thought that there was some sort of a connection. Um, other people just thought, well, it's just bad timing, you know. It's, <laughs> but it's didn't, just a co- coincidence that it all happened at the same time. Wasn't the feeling, though, sort of that he, the Mothman was trying to warn them that something was coming? Well, yeah. Some people thought it was it was more, instead of a harbinger of doom, it was, something to say, hey, you know, something bad's going to happen. <clears throat> I don't talk to a lot of people that, in the in local people that, that really go that way with it. You know, they just, a lot of the locals and stuff just think, well, you know, it was some kind of a big bird or whatever up there flying around or some kind of creature or whatever. But, you know, whenever I talk to people about, like, the uh, the bridge disaster and stuff, you know, the bridge was 40 years old. Yeah, and, you know it, it it collapsed pretty much because it was you know just in ill repair and in bad shape. But, um, but again, was the there movie, was was well, there a, a higher incidence of of UFO sightings before that or after that? I mean, that you probably can before. kind of you know there was okay. a lot of UFO activity here in, in the mid '60s, and mm-hmm. uh, of course when Everywhere, John Hill actually. Was just, yeah, yeah, that's true. And whenever the tri-state area, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio, it seemed like there was a a big concentration of those. Um, 
and then you know John Keel was also here. He was interested in that aspect of things too. You know, he he thought somehow the UFOs, the the Mothman, the, the Men in Black, the Bridge Disaster, all that stuff kind of played into one big story. You know, because it all happened within two years, pretty much. Yeah, my, I kind of feel sometimes that that incidences like this. People play up the fear aspect before they even start to try yeah. to figure out, you know, what could the purpose of this be? I mean, fear sells. I understand that. But, yeah. I mean. Yeah, well, yeah, nobody it, was ever really physically harmed by what what this was, you know. Um, mm-hmm. People ask that a lot. Has anybody ever attacked or physically harmed? And <clears throat> I've never talked to anybody. There was a lot of emotional distress and and, you know, that kind of stuff. People were, you know, worried and and uh, kind of scared and things like that, like Linda. You know, she she just always felt there was something else to it. But um, I, I, nobody was ever, you know, they're attacked in their car or, or anything like that, at least that I know of. Nobody's ever said anything about it. But uh, Well, you know, with, with instances like this, sometimes the creature – or, or whatever it is, is probably more frightened than we are. Right, I mean, right. It, it, if you took somebody yeah. from one of the African tribes, you know, right. 200, 300 years ago, would have scared yep. the bejesus out of me, but, you know. Yeah, I know. And, and yeah. the opposite, probably true, too. Yeah, you have to look at it from different different aspects and different angles and stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it's just, just a lot of speculation and uncertainty as to what it was, you know. For example, like the local elementary schools and stuff at that time would not let the kids out at recess. They wouldn't let them outside to play because they thought if it was some sort of a big bird or a giant, you know, pterodactyl or whatever, it could come and pick a kid up, you know, and take off with mm-hmm. them, you know, like a, like a small animal or a dog or something like that. So that that, that was... That was reality then, you know. They they wouldn't let them out there for a while because they, you know, they just didn't know what it was. You know, they thought you know it could be something big enough to swoop down and pick a little kid up or something. So nobody well, had be, any be, answers, you know. Because of all the toxicity that was in the ground, because of the yeah. musician, you know, munitions, not musicians. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> is it? Excuse me. Is there any possibility that that could have had a hallucinogenic effect on people? Well, you know, the the whole excuse I get a lot of times. People say, "Well, it was the '60s. You know, they were on LSD. Blah 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 blah. You know, and you know, those were our neighbors and stuff. And I've even talked to my mother about you know them. You know, because I was five years old. I didn't know them at that time. You know, but my parents knew their parents and stuff and i asked her several times i said you know were they the type of kids that would be up there carrying on and you know she said no not at all she said you know they were all you know well-respected kids and stuff you know um didn't have a bad reputation or as far as causing problems or taking drugs and, and honestly i don't really think in 66 lsd was even in this area at that time it was probably more late 60s you know, before anything like that got around here, I would think. But you know, it—it, it, I mean, the 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 chief cornstalk thing, where he and his mm-hmm. son were were 
um, executed. That doesn't right. make sense to me. But, but you know, in essence, the Mothman has been nothing but good to your town. Yeah, yeah, it has. I mean, you know, it's uh, economically and, and tourism-wise and things like that, it's just the curiosity. It's just like, you know, like, you know, Bigfoot and that kind of stuff. People are just curious. I mean, they, you know, this stuff is all documented, you know, in history of the town and stuff. And, and uh, you know, the police reports and the eyewitness accounts and things like that. And uh, people are just curious and to, as to what it really was or is or could be. I mean, you know, it's it's an open book pretty much. But... Yeah, you know, people come from all over the world. To, and, and, you know, it's we'll get people come in and just laugh and think it's hilarious, and other people come in and spend four hours in there. You know, so it just it's, everybody's different as far as... Well, I, I kind of feel sorry for it. I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's, uh, you know, and Linda did too. When that you said that, now that you said that, she always told me that, if whatever it was, she said she didn't want people out hunting it to kill it because, yeah. you know, that's what people did. That, you know, up there in the TNT area after all these sightings, people were up there with guns and rifles and carloads of people miles and miles around that TNT area. And uh, my dad was one of them. He took me and my mother up there. I don't remember it, but, you know, I don't think he had a gun or anything. But people just thought it was like a wild turkey shooting, you know, hunt for Frankenstein type thing. and. And Linda told me, she said, I just, it really bothered me that people were, you know, wanting to go whatever it was and shoot at it and kill it and stuff like that. Well, you, so, you know, there, oh. there are these idiots out there that are looking for Bigfoot to kill yeah, it, which really upsets the heck out of me. Yeah. Well, they they want that fame, you know, they they want to be the guy that, you know, shot Bigfoot or whatever. But well, yeah, but, you know, you don't understand something, so let's kill it. I know. I mean, that make, makes no sense to me at all. Right. Like King Kong, <laughs> you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, you, know, you just mentioned you know people spend four hours in the museum, or you yeah. know, uh, they go in there and you know. And that's what we want. We like that. But, I mean, you know. Yeah, it, but you know, one of the things that's one of the feelings you can't escape once you leave the museum is really the the devastating impact that the loss of almost 50 people at one time has on a small town Uh, uh, that's really uh, something very tragic and it comes across on the documentaries that you play in in there Can, can, can you tell us a little bit about yeah, you know, how a, a small town was affected. Well, you're talking about the Silver Bridge collapse that right. was in uh, December 15, 1967, um, which was at the height of all the Mothman stuff, you know. But uh, that bridge was uh, the worst bridge disaster in U.S. history. It still is. And pretty much what happened was is that bridge was built in 1928, and it was designed for people who drove horses and buggies rather than semi-trucks and coal trucks and stuff. So over the years, uh, you did not have the bridge inspection uh, programs that you have now. As a matter of fact, the, the bridge inspection programs you have now are because of the 46 people who died on that, on the bridge. But uh, 
you know, it's uh, it fell, you know, there Friday before Christmas and stuff, and um, 46 people died, and, and, you know, it. everybody in town, my mother had an uncle who was on it. I mean, you can talk to just about anybody uh, that knew somebody was on it or had a relative that was on it, you know, even 50 years later, you know, um, people still... You know, every year they have a little memorial service and stuff, and it's still just like it almost just just happened not that long ago. You know, um, and it was just a just a bad thing for the town, but in a way, you know, it's part of the history of the town. You know, the people that come in the museum um, can see some of the stuff. My dad collected all that, archived it, and everything. Eight millimeter home movies of of the bridge uh, rescue effort. My cousin was on the fire department. He took home movies out there on the boats while they were rescuing stuff, people and stuff. And, it, you know, it's just something like, you know, you're just watching the old uh, footage of some of the documentaries on TV. I mean, it, it was real and it happened, and there's still people affected by it, you know. Um, Carolyn Harris, you know, the lady that I started the the festival with and, and – uh, she had a little diner down the street. You know, her four-year-old son and her husband at the time were both on the bridge when it fell. So wow. you, you can imagine how she felt, you know. Um, but but that, that was something she didn't talk about a lot, you know. But everybody knew that, that, you know, when the bridge fell, you know, she had direct family members on it. So, um, but, yeah, you can talk to anybody. You can come to Point Pleasant, walk down the street, Stop somebody and say, "Did you? What can you tell me about the Silver Bridge?" And they all, they all know about it. Okay, and, and you know, Jeff, we have I don't know, five minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, are, are there? Do you want to plug the museum and festival websites? Yeah, that's fine. I was going to make a quick uh, mention too. Nick is on next, right? Yes. Yeah, he'll he'll be at the festival. Mm-hmm. He'll be, he's a guest speaker at the festival on uh, Saturday, and he's been there several times. And people really like it whenever he comes back to to speak and kind of hangs out and you know talks to people and stuff. So that they like that. So, um, but yeah, the uh, W or MothmanFestival dot com, MothmanMuseum dot com. We have a new Mothman app that you, it's a free app that you can get in the. The uh, App Store, it's it's available for, you know, regular phones and iPhones both. And that has sections on it about the festival, the museum, and the history. You know, people like may not know anything, you know, about, about the Mothman. You can get on there and learn a little bit of it, about it too. Um, of course, we have all the Facebook stuff. It's just real hard to keep up with all this stuff, Instagram, Twitter. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm just like, you know, those kids in my class at school, you know, they they keep me abre- uh, updated on all that kind of stuff. Um, there's also, I don't know if you've heard or not, but Bethesda Gaming is putting a, a game out called Fallout 76. comes out in November. That is a, a major video game coming out, and it's based, the playing field and the the playing area is based on the state of West Virginia and the Mothman Museum and the Mothman both play an important role in that mo- in that game. How um, cool. 
So that's going to be a massive piece of exposure right there. Um, again, that's that's a different demographic than I'm used to dealing with. That's the kids in my class keep me updated on all these games, and that's that's a big big deal for them. So it's like a new audience coming along, but the, the, they have a, the Mothman Museum is in the game. So, but they're tight-lipped about that right now. The company that's putting it out, they won't tell anybody about what role the Mothman Museum plays in it. But I kind of get an idea that it's going to be something pretty cool. Okay, and uh, who are some of the other speakers? Uh, Nick's going to be there. Yep, uh, Ken Gerard, uh, Lyle Blackburn. Uh, Steve Ward, um, Lauren uh, Coleman. Yeah, well, no, Lauren had canceled. Oh, yeah, he canceled. <laughs> he, he he can't get there at that time, so we had we got him a replacement, a couple of replacements. It's all on the website, and it's it's on the the app and everything too. Um, several, you know, like I said, we covered the Bigfoot, uh, Mothman, UFOs, paranormal stuff. We even have a local historian, uh, Craig Hessen. Who, who's going to talk about the Battle Point Pleasant? So, you know, for for some of the people who want to learn about the history and stuff. Now, are you coming to the festival? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, you'll have to look me up. I'm usually running up and down the street. You know. I'll 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 look make for sure you. you. Make sure you pull me aside. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll be wearing the uh, blue and gold Mothman. Uh, a T-shirt, blue. Okay, all right. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Just pull walking. me aside if you see me walking by. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll look for you. I'm um, have to stop in and get uh, another T-shirt too. I like the one with the um, Mothman flying over the Battle Point Pleasant monument. Yeah. And yeah, that's a new one. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like that one. I'm gonna have to get I get that one while I'm down there as well. Okay. Is, is is there anything you know? People can go, go uh, get on the bus tours. Yeah, the bus to tours. You know, you can get on the festival website, and and there's still a few tickets left on that. They can order their tickets right there. Sometimes, you know, you know, you know what? You know what this reminds me of? You know the cargo cults in World War Two. Yeah. Uh huh. How they how they took the cargo planes and they they wove their whole history around them and they celebrated them once a year. It's almost like that's happening here, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be, yeah. I, th- yeah, I think the Mothman has been very kind to you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's been a unique experience for me. I mean, you know, it's, you know, my, my career started off as, you know, being a, a musician and playing in bands and thinking I was going to be a rock star and all that, and things kind of turned the other way, and it went into the, from music to monsters, and I, at one time I had a chain of record stores, you know, and sold music, and then the cool. internet kind of killed that, and uh, so I ended up doing, you know, from music to monsters, which is pretty cool, it's almost the same thing, you know. And... it. it it can be a little, you know, parking can be a little difficult yeah. in yeah. downtown, but you, you do have, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, shuttle buses from some... Uh, Out there to Crowdell Park, yeah. 
Right. Okay, yeah. okay so uh, that service is available as well? Yeah. The problem is those shuttle buses get kind of caught in traffic too. So, um, But you, you, that's an optional parking. You can park anywhere in town you can find as long as you don't park in somebody's you know, driveway or their front yard. But, um, you know, if you park out Crowdell Park, what we try to do is run some shuttle buses to take you over to town and back. And and sometimes that gets a little gummed up too. But, you know, just park where you can find. If you get there early Saturday, shouldn't be an issue. And, and, and the uh, speakers will be at the State Theater? Yeah, that's the historic State Theater there on Main Street, yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's sets empty year round. They've tried to sell it and tried to sell it, but the the owner lets us use it for the festival. So there's no air conditioning, but it doesn't stay. It's not too bad in here. We we keep the air circulating pretty good. Okay. Uh, is there anything else we need to uh, know? There's what ha- handicap parking. Yeah, there's available as well. Right on Vian Street. That's limited. I mean, that's not a huge parking lot. The county and the city people take care of all that parking stuff. But, you know, we, we put it on the map and, and the website so people at least know when they come into town what to expect. So hopefully everybody can, you know, find a place to park their car. It's a good problem to have, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, okay. Um, all right. And... Nick just called in. Um, yeah, uh, Jeff, do you want to h- hang on for a minute and talk to yeah. Nick? Or okay. Well, I mean, I'll let you go ahead and talk to Nick. I'll be talking to him this week, but but I appreciate you having me on the show and stuff. You know, oh, I'm uh, sure he's got some interesting stuff to talk about too. Oh yeah, uh, we'll uh, get 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 Nick going here in ju- just okay. a second. But okay. I, I'll, I'll look for you in a couple weeks. That's. Uh, September 15th uh, and 16th. Okay. At Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Yeah. We'll see you cool. there. All right. Yeah. I'll I'll be there. Okay. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Okay. And thanks for having me on. Oh, we'll you're, see you. you're welcome. And we'll we'll talk in a couple weeks. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, uh, Barbara. We need to bring Nick on. He's on. Okay. Hi, hi, Nick. How you doing? Hey, look, I'm good. Thanks. Good, good. Yeah, we and if um, you know, the audience, uh, you know, just just uh, caught uh, Nick's voice. Um, you know, you probably heard him a lot of times on Ancient Aliens, and he's going to be speaking uh, Saturday, the fifteenth, at the State Theater. Uh, and our guest is uh, Nick Redfern, author of all kinds of books on UFOs and the black-eyed kids, men in black, women in black. Just prolific author, uh, maestro, the mysterious. So, welcome, Nick. Glad, glad you're with us. You know, what? Oh, thanks, guys. You know what? Yeah, uh, Jeff just uh, told us you know you're making uh, another appearance at the Mothman Festival. Um, what what does it mean to you to 
be a return speaker to such a prestigious uh, uh, festival? Well, you know, I mean, I'm always pleased to come back and always pleased to get the invite. You know, it's um, it's because it's pretty much like a unique event. I mean, if you think about it, probably other than the yearly uh, festival in Roswell, most events on the paranormal are sort of regular conferences, you know, where you'll get three or four hundred people turn up and, you know, in a in a hotel or a lecture room, that kind of thing. But um, the Mothman Festival, I think, is, is cool because it's completely different to any other kind of paranormal event where you have not just speakers, but, you know, it's like um, it's a family weekend. You know, it's kind of like um, a state fair, but on a, on a huge stage. Um, but, you know, focusing on strange creatures and the legend of Mothman. And I like the fact that there's a lot of diversity you know you've got all the the stalls and stands outside where people are selling everything from you know from from food to mothman fridge magnets and paintings artwork you know clothes all sorts of things and then you've got bands playing and um and all sorts of different things going on and i think what what i like about it 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 sort of creates sort of a a community environment, you know, you you get mm-hmm. to see um, friends you haven't seen for a long time and new faces, and um, and it's sort of a you know it's a cool weekend of getting to know people, hanging out, listening to lectures, eating some good food, you know, and drinking some moth beer, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Nick, you. Uh, you know, just I'm sure that the listeners can tell just by your accent that you know you you bring a international perspective to this conference. Uh, you know, you've traveled a lot in uh, Great Britain. You know, you've written a book on Nessie. Uh, you know, I'm sure you saw a lot of gargoyles and kind of like almost cryptid creatures uh, on the cathedrals. Mm. Uh, You you have some of the local uh, legends like Owlman that your friend uh, Ken Ken, uh, wrote about. So, you you know, these creatures really aren't anything new. Uh, you, know, you, you know, you grew up around, uh, like, Nessie that was documented in, what, the mm. 6th century. What, what is going on with these creatures? Mm. Well, that's, that's a good question because it depends on which sort of perspective you take on it because within cryptozoology, which is the study of unknown animals like Bigfoot, lake monsters, the Yeti, the Chupacabra, things like that. Um, Some people take the view that these creatures are just purely flesh and blood animals of a kind that we haven't found yet. You know, we haven't classified them. But then on the other hand, you have people who, like me, think that there's something more weirder um, about a lot of these strange creatures. You know, they're, they're elusive to the point of almost impossibility. And there are cases of 
uh, like Bigfoot vanishing in a flash of light and people having weird experiences at Loch Ness that have nothing to do with the Loch Ness monster, but sightings of UFOs and men in black encounters at the Loch. Um, so I'm sort of one of these people who think that, yes, these creatures like Mothman are real, but I don't think they're just unknown animals. I think they sort of fall far more into sort of like a paranormal category. And um, But it was actually the, the story of the Loch Ness Monster that got me interested in all this. When I was a kid, probably about six or seven, my parents took me on a week's vacation to Scotland and we spent a day at Loch Ness. And my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster. And, um, you know, when you're sort of that age, six or seven, and your dad tells you, you know, there's a monster or a colony of monsters in this huge body of water that you're standing literally in it right now um it, it sort of really caught my attention and then when i was about 11 or 12 i started reading books by people like um brad steiger and john keel and things like that and um and then when i left school um i didn't know what i wanted to do i wasn't the best uh, I wasn't the best student, to put it uh, diplomatically. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to work in a job I hated doing and having to wear a shirt and a tie and a jacket, you know, which isn't me. And um, and I stumbled just purely by accident on um, a job that was being offered um, on a new magazine that was being established in the town I was living when I was about 17, 18. And it was kind of like, um, you know, like entertainment magazine, um, what's on for bands playing and, um, you know, different things going on in the area and interviews with uh, visiting bands, that kind of thing. And, you know, I enjoyed it. It didn't feel like a real job. And um, I did that for about two years. And then I thought, well, why not try and combine the background that I developed in journalism with the paranormal, but sort of take a journalistic approach to investigating weird stuff. So that's sort of um, what got me involved in all this, really. And, and you know, since you were just, you know, you go out and talk with you know, uh, eyewitnesses or, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, the townsfolk, what... Uh, it, you know, like, what's your view of the credibility of these people who may be coming to you mm. or uh, you know, getting them to open up? What, you know, are, are they believe or are some believable? Well, yeah. I mean, I think when you, particularly when you meet people in person and interview them, you become sort of a good judge of character. You know, when you sat up opposite someone, you're talking about their experience and sometimes like a really traumatic experience they might have had. And you see the sort of look of fear on the face and the stress. And, you know, you can you can tell um, after doing, you know, more than a few interviews that you you, you become a good judge of character. And, um, and And I think for that reason, more than anything else, you get to really understand what is at the heart of of the experience and how it changed the person and perhaps traumatized some people or excited others you know and so when you're able to speak to people in person you know all of that comes tumbling out and i think you know my experience has been that you know i don't think there's anybody 
in this field who hasn't at least once or twice been hoaxed, you know, by somebody who just wants to mess around with you, you know, to, and wasting time. But I think the honestly think the vast majority of all the people I've spoken to, you know, are just normal, genuine, earnest and honest people who who want an answer to what it was they saw or experienced. And um, that's what I try and do is sort of, you know, if they've got questions, if I can help them provide answers and so on, you know, I'll be happy to do that. Um, or if they want advice, um, you know, what they should do in, in case they get sort of repeat experiences as some witnesses do. You know, I always try and be there for people because I always tell people that, you know, that the most uh, important figures within the paranormal world are the witnesses because without the witnesses, we don't really have anything to go on, you know, so we have to listen carefully to them. Okay, and, you know, when, you know, say we're dealing with a Mothman mm. scenario, and, 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 and I kind of touched uh, on this subject with uh, uh, Jeff, but, you know, I'd just like to get your uh, perspective. Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, isolated rural community could could something uh, like one of these cryptids actually survive in such an area where you know there, there really aren't a lot of people uh, there to uh, witness uh, uh, you know, this unusually large you know, flying bird or flying humanoid uh, uh, creature. You, you, and you know, so, so when they you know come to you and you know, sit, sit down, at, uh, you know, just have a cup of coffee with them. Uh, you know, what are, are you know, you know, do, do you think that they're really believable uh, with such a story from, uh, you know, the yeah, you know, such a remote area. Was that question for Jeff? No, it, it, was, so. it, it was it was for you. <laughs> it was like, oh. what, you, know, what, you know, do you do, do you think that it's uh, you know this is entirely a uh, you know very plausible uh, um, hmm. Uh, a- animal that ha- has survived from mm. you know long well, ago, and mm. you know uh, the you know the witnesses are presenting a, a, a very accurate depiction of something that they saw. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing from my own perspective is I'm not entirely sure that animal is the right is the right term to use. Um, you know, I don't sort of shy away from the fact that I do believe there is sort of a supernatural component to a lot of these creatures. And certainly, you know, if you look at the Mothman, if it was just sort of a winged unknown animal that popped up out the blue and there was nothing else going on, then, yeah, I could sort of accept that, you know, something weird just flew over Point Pleasant, for, you know, for a while and terrorized the people. But on the other hand, you know, you in the same area and in the same time frame, 
you had a lot of UFO activity. You know, these, the creepy men in black were running around town. Um, and then, of course, it all culminated with the collapse of the Silver Bridge. And, and of course, John Keel, just weeks before the bridge collapsed, warned Mary Heyer um, that there was going to be some sort of disaster in the town. So you put all that together, including the Mothman, and I think we're dealing with something that is clearly a real entity, but I don't think you know we can class it as an animal in the way we understand the term. Now, what it is, whether it's some sort of multidimensional thing, some sort of supernatural entity that warns of disasters or causes disasters, depending on which way you look at it. Um, and I think, you know, Keel himself admitted that, um, you know, he was dealing with sort of very strange, uncharted territory and um, entities that seem to have been around with us for you know as long as we've been around and uh, you know manipulating us and toying with us and so on um so you know i i personally can't sort of investigate the mothman mystery from the perspective of it being like the equivalent of um you know uh, an unknown type of i don't know a lion in the you know the african jungle a new offshoot has just been found i can't i'm not able to investigate it like that because i don't think the mothman kind of relates to um you know normality it's everything about it is abnormal so i think we have to investigate it more from the perspective of a of a paranormal investigation than you know searching for a, an unknown animal that's where i was well, going to go as far as asking a question because to me it it felt like he came through a portal of some sort or there was mm. an overlap of dimensions scared the scared the daylights out of him mm-hmm. and and then finally found the port found found the back door so he could go back home um well be, it it just doesn't seem like there are that many sightings today as there were back mm. in the 60s well there's certainly there's not as many around Point Pleasant, although I do know occasionally reports do surface. But, I mean, you know, you can find things not unlike Mothman around the world. For example, um, in the early 1970s in Da Nang, Vietnam, there was a, a famous case of this um, woman that was seen um, flying over the, the hills of Vietnam late one night when... Um, a group of U.S. troops were on, on guard, on patrol, and um, they saw this, what looked like a, a woman flying across the sky, sort of silhouetted against the moon, and they, they swore that she got so close they could actually hear her wings kind of flapping and beating. And um, in England in the uh, early 1960s, in a, an area called Hive in the county of Kent, a creature very much like um, the Mothman was seen there. And it was even had the bright red eyes and the, the huge wings. And if you go back yeah. to 1953 in Houston, Texas, uh, there was a story of what became known as Houston Batman, which uh, was briefly covered in the local newspapers. And that was just kind of like the Mothman. So you can find these kind of entities all around the world and throughout history. And I think, you know, the one country calls it Mothman, Another one calls it Owlman. Somebody calls it the Houston Batman. Someone calls it a gargoyle. Basically, very similar phenomena, you know. 
Yeah, it's you, just, it, go ahead, Mark. Okay. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say, do, do you think that there's uh, a specific, like, species or fa- you know, small families that have evolved around the world? Um. Well, again, you know, um, from from my perspective, at least, you know, I think the fact that I consider it more supernatural than a physical animal, um, I think, you know, the angle of babies and offspring may not even be relevant, you know. Um, but there are those who, you know, do think that a lot of these things are just flesh and blood unknown animals. And if that is the case, then yes, you know, there would have to be families and groups and and so on um the the i guess the big problem i have with a lot of classifying a lot of these things as just unknown animals is the fact that they're always completely elusive you know that there's certain categories of strange creatures which are always 100 percent elusive that's like the weird flying humanoids lake monsters um bigfoot type creatures uh <coughs> excuse me and things like that and we never, ever catch them, ever, you know. And um, reports of Bigfoot have been made from all across the United States, you know, thousands and thousands of reports. And, you know, if it was the size of a squirrel, I could understand why we've never got one. But we're talking about animals that are sort of <laughs> seven to eight feet tall, you know, in a country as advanced and as civilized and as populated as the U.S. And we can't even catch even one eight-foot-tall giant ape. They never get hit by cars. They never get shot. But I wouldn't want people to think I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm not. I'm just saying that I think Bigfoot isn't just an unknown North American ape. There are a lot of stories of Bigfoot sort of vanishing in the flash of a light, um, where people have seen strange lights flitting around the creatures, um, lots of weird stuff like this. So I think a lot of these creatures, similar to Mothman, but appear at first glance to be flesh and blood animals are something much weirder um you know i I think look at it from the perspective of you know an explorer going out to catch an animal i just don't think you're going to be able to do that with mothman because it's you know it sort of almost defies reality and physics you know in in the first hour with jeff uh, you know, we did talk about uh, uh, Linda, one of the witnesses, uh, felt like there was a telepathy associated with Mothman. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a, a little bit more supporting evidence for what you're saying. That maybe he's an interdimensional mm. uh Character. It, 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 it seems like it just doesn't have a, a normal human animal type feelings. It's, it has like you know little supernatural type mm-hmm. uh, traits. Oh yeah, there's there's no doubt about that in my mind. I mean, just the fact that you know the sort of bright red reflecting, almost glowing eyes. You know. And the fact that um, the first sighting, which was in um, a nearby town, Glendennin, I think it was called, um, 
you know, the, the first sighting of all places was in a cemetery. And, um, you know, and in no time after there was the Mothman or the Mothman wave began, you know, you had the men in black in town. And we're not talking about men in black who look like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. They were sort of like creepy, pale, sometimes small guys, sometimes very tall and skinny. And they didn't really even look human. You know, their faces kind of look like plastic and like a mannequin. And, um, you know, you put all that together and combine that with the tragedy of the, the bridge disaster and dozens of people killed, you know, and this sort of specter of the, the Mothman moving over Point Pleasant, then, yeah, I think, you know, we can make a good case that this is sort of more of a supernatural entity. And the fact that these things do have this kind of here one minute or here one second gone the next second angle to them does make me think that we possibly are dealing with things that in their normal state exist in, in a totally different reality to ours, but they're able to enter our world and leave it for their own and then go back to their own dimension or, or realm, whatever you want to call it. But I would not be surprised if, you know, it's so bizarre that we just still to this day don't have an understanding of what not only these things are, but the kind of reality even which they live in. You know, it could be something that it's just so mind-blowing that it's impossible for us to, you know, to get our head even around it. Well, uh, you know, what you said ties in with what uh, Barbara mentioned earlier uh, when she brought up uh, as Chief Cornstalk was Mm. about to be killed, he you know, legend has it that he you know, brought down this like um, you know, curse. Uh, yeah, curse is like uh, almost like a. It, it, it seemed to had to be based. It, 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 if this is true, it had to be based on something farther mm. back in the past. This you know is a curse. Some kind of like like calling something out of like another dimension to haunt an area is does that mm. is that some kind of tie-in with what Barbara said? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if, I mean, the, the the whole Chief Cornstalk, you know, angle that's that's interesting from the perspective of of sort of like a curse type situation, you know, and then at some point it sort of triggers and you have the disaster. Um, but in terms of, you know, summoning things up, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of people have had um, experiences and very often negative experiences when they've tried to summon up supernatural entities. I mean, um, you know, you can go back through throughout the ages, throughout the centuries when you had people, um, like John Dee, um, trying to manifest entities using magical rituals, which is basically the same thing that Crowley did um, in the latter part of the 1800s through the early part of the 20th century. Um, and he actually summoned up a very strange creature known as Lamb, L-A-M. And uh, if you look at pictures of Lamb on the internet, um, it looks 
just like an alien gray today. And so, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that um, ritualistic magic is a is a reality. We're not talking, when I say magic, we're not talking about, you know, some guy you see on the stage in Vegas pulling a, a rabbit out of a hat or, you know, sawing a hot girl in half. <laughs> Nothing like that. <laughs> That's sort of, you know, the modern day dumbed down um, entertainment side of magic. Ritualistic magic, uh, chaos magic, things like this are intended to sort of, you know, invoke and evoke um, a response, a reality. Um, and, you know, it can involve, in, in essence, sort of requesting something, demanding something, or trying to open a portal or a doorway and, and it sort of invite something through, if you like. But I always say to people, in many of these cases and these sort of um, ritualistic magical rites, you very often find that it all turns badly for the for the summoner, for the for the conjurer, so to speak. And um, you know, opening the doorways and the portals is very easy. It's not that easy to close the doors when the things come through. So I always tell people to be kind of careful of all this. Because I used to do this quite a lot, and I found this sort of disturbing trend that the more I did it, the more that there was like um, like a hostile um, feedback kind of thing. Um, and, and eventually I sort of walked away from doing that because it just... I could. I just saw how it was happening every time. It was trying trying to summon these things up to understand what they were. You know, I started to get weird stuff happen in my apartment, like um, light bulbs exploding and um, waking in the middle of the night and seeing sort of shadowy things in the bedroom. And um, and I knew that I'd done something that was sort of pretty reckless. But what I I wanted to do it. Um, to try and get the answers. And that's one of the uh, sort of ironic things about all this. To get the answers, you have to sort of go down a dangerous pathway. But doing so very often causes these things to come through and then they start manipulating you to the point where you're not actually getting answers. You're just filled with more and more mysteries and more and more issues to deal with, you know. Okay. And That was a good uh, tie-in tie with the curse. I, I, I just, mm. yeah, it's like you know, just really putting that into uh, perspective. On, I, I like it's, that. That that is just an intriguing story in in, in itself. But yeah, Nick, have you had a chance to dr- drive? around a little bit of Mason County? Um, Got to be honest, you know, when I've been to the festival, I've always been at the weekend, you know, for, for the festival itself. So the only sort of driving around I've been able to do um, on the times I've been there is sort of around the, you know, the TNT plants where all the, the sightings mm-hmm. went down. And um, so that that's sort of, you know, if, Hopefully, unfortunately not this time, but hopefully the next time I'm there, um, you know, I'll be able to spend perhaps a week there or something like that, which would be cool to sort of go around the whole area. But um, but as of now, it's, I've just had the chance to sort of, you know, see all the sites around town. 
um, and also check out the the old TNT plant area and um, you know the woods around there where the creatures were seen. Yeah, it is really uh, scenic drives along the river. I just mm-hmm. wonder if you've you know just you know, you've yeah. been so busy. Uh, you know the, the you know the couple of days that you know you're there for the festival. I, you know, I just wondered if you had enough time to just get, go out for a little bit of a drive. Not really. No, it's just one of those things where you know you're sort of hanging out, lecturing, chatting with people, and then before you know it, it's all it's all over. You know, <laughs> yeah. head home. Okay. So, uh, um, yeah. The, the, what do you think of? All of the Mothman stories could be an owl or the sandhill crane. Is there any possibility uh, the inevitable weather balloon from you know some other official? Mm-hmm. What you know? Do, do you think we can rule out those kind of possibilities? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't um I mean a crane's a crane, you know, if you see a big bird, you see a big bird. Um if you happen to see something that looks vaguely humanoid with huge wings soaring across the sky, you know, you're clearly gonna differentiate between that and a large crane. Um you know, and um when you've got also the reports where some of the witnesses said, you know, the, the creatures just seem to take off vertically, almost like a helicopter. You know, there's some cases like that. Well, that's mm-hmm. biologically speaking, that's impossible. You know, I mean, um, if you see a bird, I mean, they have to sort of, you know, they flap their wings to take to the sky or the birds sort of run along a bit, you know, the bigger ones to get momentum and then take off. Um, but, you know, with Mothman, there are some cases which weren't like that. It sort of just took to the sky, you know, vertically. So um, I think, you know, the the owl angle, I mean, I've heard some people say, well, maybe, you know, it was just a normal-sized owl, but it was sitting on a branch in a tree. So it looked like it was eight feet tall rather than just a small owl sitting on a branch six foot off the ground, you know, which is an interesting scenario. But the fact is... You know, if people are mistaking owls all over Point Pleasant, why aren't they mistaking owls for something huge all across the world or across the United States? Why is it people only mistaking owls in places like Point Pleasant? So to me, you know, the um, the owl angle, you know, the crane angle, um, things like this, people using hang gliders or whatever, we, we can just sort of... Um, you know, put it out in the garbage. What would you call it in England? The rubbish. <laughs> uh, rubbish. <laughs> Bro, do, do, do you have a question, or and just keep keep going on? What? Wants to step well, I'm in just I'm for, fascinated for by the <clears throat> I'm fascinated by the the element of I think that there's something definitely very metaphysical or paranormal here. Mm. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand, and, and I think what they're doing with the town and having the festival is fabulous because in many ways it, 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 it brings a, 
and understanding to the people that, you know, yes, the Mothman was here and it's not that scary and let's dress up like him. And and it's sort of, it has been like I, like I said to, to Jeff, Mothman has been very good to this town. Um, and I think it, it's in a good way that people go mm-hmm. and celebrate the fact that something like this blessed their area i i would love to check out you know the tnt area and Mm -hmm. some of the other areas for magnetic anomalies to see if there are ley lines there to see if there Mm -hmm. are any electrical disturbances there to see if there are any power spots Mm -hmm. well yeah there's no yeah there's no doubt has anybody ever um I'm not sure if they have or not. Honestly, not sure. But I mean, what I would say is that there were sort of some hot spots, you know, around town where the creature was seen, particularly around the old TNT area. Um, you know, I think that's an. Int- I don't know why that might be the case, but we do find all around the world, um, you know, specific areas where there are um, a lot of weird things going on. For example, where I grew up in central England. There's a large area of woodland or forest land called the Cannock Chase, which has had sightings of things like the Mothman, Bigfoot, werewolf-type creatures. Um, you have the Skinwalker Ranch in um, Utah. We've got Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Um, East Texas, you've got an area called the Big Thicket, which again has sightings of UFOs and Bigfoot-type creatures. So, so I do think you know it's worth checking out not just the cases and the witnesses and investigating, you know, these creatures, but also to check out the areas and try and figure out why so much weirdness goes on in these sort of clearly, but relatively small areas. And yet they attract so much weirdness. Um, So I think, you know, there's, there's, there are a lot of aspects to the Mothman mystery that, you know, need to be addressed to try and resolve it all. But I mean, you do, you made a good point when you said about, you know, the festival itself. I think, you know, it's good that the the town sort of, you know, comes together and it's sort of a laid back fun event, you know, and um, there's not sort of too much dwelling on, you know, the deaths. People are sort of, you know, trying focusing on the positive side of it all and, um and, and keeping it sort of light and entertaining for people, and, and which it is, you know. And I think, as I said, there's, there's this definite sort of sense of community where we're all there, you know, whether it's people just to see what's going on or somebody like me is lecturing, somebody else is, like I said, selling their fridge magnets or paintings. There's kind of like a sense of us, we're all in it together, you know. We're all um, part of the same thing, and we're all on the same level, just having an interest in this and hanging out together and chatting and, and so on. And I think that's that's a good way of, of dealing with it, you know, and um, and, and kind of demonstrating that, um, yeah, that something weird happened and we're going to, you know, <laughs> tell the world, basically. I, w- I would love to see somebody like um, <clears throat> Maria Wheatley do some dowsing there or... Mm. You know, it just it feels to me as though there has to be some sort of energetic power there in you know, whether it was the munitions, whether it is a geographical anomaly, but it, it does feel as though there's there's something there probably of an electrical mm-hmm. 
venue that 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 invites that kind of um, visitation? Mm. Well, you know, I mean, there was a lot of weird stuff going on out there, like electrical problems. Um, John Keel, for example, talked about how a lot of the uh, Mothman witnesses and also to their witnesses to the men in black, they started to get really weird phone calls, like strange static on the lines and um, weird noises and languages spoken very, very quickly that they couldn't even understand what the language was. And, and again, sort of electrical problems. And, and so, you know, I think there's some, there's clearly some, some kind of energy or residual energy that sort of remains and um, possibly and, and causes these sort of after effects and uh, like lingering effects as well. But, um, yeah, there's, there's well, so well, you many know, different you, aspects, you know. You, 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 you mentioned really a trigger word there. I mean, when people go through um, a, a death experience when a group of them mm. do, that does leave an energetic imprint on the mm. area that could easily cause um, electrical anomalies and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's the case, but it, it mm. is frequent, it does frequently happen when people pass over. Um, sometimes there is uh, sometimes people even get telephone calls from them after they've passed over. So, mm-hmm. so spiritual energy in one form is able to to create those kinds of things. But Mothman was there before the the accident. But um, it just it feels to me like it, it it's absolutely. It feels interdimensional, and and that's why I was looking for electrical anomalies because they seem to where where you have electrical anomalies, where you have ley lines, where you have power spots. Um, that seems to be where the UFOs gather. That seems to be mm-hmm. where there is there is interest that draws in um, extreme phenomena of of one sort or another. And I'm not saying it's bad, and I'm not saying it's it's um you know evil i'm just saying mm-hmm. it seems to be where those things are clustered mm-hmm. yeah and i think you know the, the key to solving all this could actually be to understand how these sort of portal areas dimensional areas how they work and how mm-hmm. you know can we how can can we learn how to operate them you know that's one of the clear things that's obvious that these things can jump in and out of our reality but we're stuck here you know we, we just don't know how to how to do it you know the day when the day comes hopefully when we can do it then potentially we could learn much more about them but the problem is so far as far as we know at least you know no one's achieved this properly well it feels to me as though we inadvertently open the portals mm-hmm. but we we don't realize that we're actually doing it and yeah. I, I, I don't think that they do it from their side. I think we open them and people step in mm-hmm. and say, oh, look, Henry, another place to vacation, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's what I think in, 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 in some way the, the Bigfoot stuff is. You know, these are, mm-hmm. these are creatures coming, you know, they're on holiday. And, you know, they, they jump in and they jump back out. That's why there are no bones. They haven't. Found, they even haven't mm-hmm. found any scat. So 
you know, they, there's very little evidence that they exist except that people have seen them, and, and they do exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, you made a good um, uh, statement there, you know, when you're talking about that we're actually causing these events to occur or inviting them through, you know. And I think you can find throughout history where people have sort of, um, you know, attempted to interact with supernatural entities and um, and they focus so deeply that, I th- you know, I think it, it is actually the case that um, by focusing on it, you essentially are allowing it into your environment. Whether you're not, you actually realize you're doing it, that is what you're doing. And, um, uh-huh. you know, it's kind of like the old legends of vampires where they, you know, they enter your house because you, you invite them in, you know, and um, they don't come in unless you invite them. So uh, and that goes with modern-day mysteries like the black-eyed children who the witnesses say, you know, always try and find a way, they always try and find a way to be invited into the home, and um, which is not a good thing to do. But um, But people do find themselves lured into kind of making it easier for them to get into our reality. And then, of course, when they are here, well, then we're the ones who sort of need to worry then, you know. Yes. <laughs> no, it is. It is fascinating. I, I think that 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 Mothman and Nessie and and Bigfoot and all Super sorts Cobra. of other. Yes, them them too. Um, it, it's just uh, you know we've we we have invited them into our reality and and to go hunting for them or to try to kill them is is to me. Um, just awful and wrong because well, for the most part said, they haven't I, hurt anybody yeah. well I think you know with things like Bigfoot it, there are enough cases on the record where people have tried to shoot a Bigfoot and it's just had no effect or the creature has just vanished I'm not entirely sure we could even kill a Bigfoot um, you know if it is supernatural and it's you know it comes from another plane of reality it may mm-hmm. not even be sort of subjected to the, you know, the normal physical state of the planet, and et cetera, et cetera. Its, its version of reality may be very different. So, you know, it may actually not be possible to uh, to kill these creatures because they don't exist in the way we exist. You know, they could be sort of pure energy taking on different forms, you know, like a, a shapeshifter kind of thing. Could it even be a, a case of um, an overlapping of timelines where where you're seeing another timeline that isn't this timeline and therefore this time doesn't affect them and that timeline doesn't affect us, but we see it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting theory because there are a lot of cases where people have found themselves um, going through sort of time slips. You know, they're, they're walking down the street and then suddenly everything goes quiet and then the, uh-huh. the street around them looks different, you know, and they suddenly realize that all the people in the street are wearing, like, 1940s clothes and, the, you know, the familiar stores in the streets are no longer there, but there are other ones, you know, and then 10 minutes after it all goes away and the person's back in normal reality again. There are a lot of cases like that where, you know, we're not talking about somebody jumping in a, time machine, you know, like Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. But we are talking about the end process being the same thing, where somebody has a fleeting view of 
the past or in some cases of the future, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe you, maybe some of these things are like a, an image that you see and of of the past, almost like um you know a sort of a a snippet of a of an old movie or something like that. Could be. Uh, Could be. Yeah, uh, Nick, you've get, given us all kinds of fascinating things to ponder for the next <clears throat> what, couple two two and a half weeks before uh, you know they can actually engage you in you know, more discussions about Mothman at the. Uh, Mothman Festival and mm-hmm. all all kinds of other uh, you know cryptids, but you know, are you going to be covering uh, this kind of material for your lecture on Saturday? Yeah, I'll be speaking. I've got a new book out on the Men in Black right now, um, which actually my fifth book on the on the subject, and um, but this one covers um, Men in Black, Women in Black. Black-eyed children, and the book's called the Black Diary because it's sort of like um, my own journal, in my own words, of about th- the last three years of all my investigations into things like the black-eyed kids, women in black, men in black. So I'll be talking about that and new cases and um, new sightings and um, different theories for for what these creatures might be and how and why it all sort of kind of ties in with the with the Mothman uh, phenomenon. It, it, it is interesting that you know, it's you know there, there's you know the Mothman shows up and all of a sudden the men in black are like they're the next day. I mean, it, it's yeah. just it's it just uh, in in Jeff's book I and mean, uh, you know when the Scarberry talks about, um, the, you know, the, you know that she she thought that there was a connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you know your your lecture is going to be focusing on very similar material as what uh, you know, like the, the the sudden appearance of them, the UFOs. You know the. Uh, Linda thought that they were trying to distract mm. uh, the the people from uh, uh, you know what's really going on. I, so, you know, what what are some other views that you found from the uh, you know, in, in your case studies? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things to note, and which I'll be mentioning in the lecture, is you know the when the men in black turned up in Point Pleasant, you know, they weren't, like I said earlier, like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, you know, they weren't, they clearly were not agents of some sort of secret group in the government. You know, they didn't even look fully human. Some of them are very pale skin. Um, you know, their skin, people said, you know, they couldn't figure out how old the person was or how young they were. They looked sort of weirdly ageless. And um, there are some reports of them wearing these large wraparound sunglasses and behind the sunglasses they had these sort of large bulging eyes. Um, And, you know, so really it's Hollywood that sort of defined the men in black as being secret agents of the government. If you speak to the vast majority of the witnesses, 
they actually talk about something that looks like a cross between a vampire and the walking dead. You know, that they look like sort of, uh, they walk jerkily in some cases and they look sort of pale and sick. And, um, and you know, they, they look, they don't look entirely human. So I think all of this, you know, well, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I'll be speaking about all this in the lecture in terms of um, the men in black presence and what they might be and how they tie in with Mothman. And also looking at new cases, people don't realize there's a lot of um, very uh, up-to-date cases of the men in black. And, and even to this day, they, they're still described as wearing like the old style black suits and black fedoras. And, um, you know, it's almost like they're frozen in time and haven't sort of even an understanding of how to sort of infiltrate, if you like, uh, our reality. They just stand out because they just look so and act so weird, you know. Okay. And, you know, uh, you're going to be coming up with your buddy Ken. Yeah, there's me, um, Ken, and a friend of ours, um, Shelley uh, Montana. Uh, Shelley uh, does a lot of Bigfoot research, and um, so she's coming up, so there'll be the three of us. And then on the way back, um, Lyle Blackburn, who's speaking, Lyle's going to be um, coming back with us because we all live pretty much close to each other. So uh, we're going to be able to take turns driving and take turns sleeping and... (laughs) Because okay, well, it, it is like and, about, it's about an eighteen or nineteen hour drive, something like that. So. But but if you know people want to, um, you know, have a good understanding about uh, you know, Mothman, more of the flying humanoid topics, it, you know, they can get uh, uh, encounters with flying humanoids by Ken Gerhard. Uh, yeah, you know, I just want to give. Uh, him a plug to uh you know you've ha- had some recent books on uh, the chupacabra nessie uh so you know you've written extensively on um uh, 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 uh cryptids as well so uh, you know people can find you know, your books online where you're probably going to have the, uh, those copies of you know, to extend the uh, cryptid studies that they are at the festival and what uh, people can uh, ha- have you uh, autograph them so you, you're you're gonna have all that kind of stuff there as well, right? Yeah, I'll be spe- I'll be as I said, I'll be talking on the Black Diary books. So I'll have copies mm-hmm. of that. I'll also have my. Chupacabra book and the the Nessie book and uh, several other ones as well and so you know I like to sort of keep it um, fresh where people you know they can sort of learn a bit of everything really through the lecture and uh, and yeah in Ken's book if you know if people want to um, learn more about Mothman and, and flying humanoids in general Ken's book Encounters with Flying Humanoids is probably the best book out there to get because it covers not just you know, recent things like Mothman, it goes way back into like ancient Greece and Rome with things like the harpies and the gargoyles and and covers just about everything, you know. And um, I'm not sure what Ken's talking about this year, but, um, you know, he always gives a good visual mm-hmm. presentation. So. 
Uh, yeah, he does. And in the Flying Humanoids book um, ha- has samples from around the world, which you know, you know it, it, it's really a worldwide phenomenon. Mm. So yeah, know, these want... people don't realize that. You know, there's sightings all over the place. Yeah, I just I just wanted to you know, give, give Ken a little uh, plug as well. Uh, he's he, he's he. He, he's an ex. Well, the, both of you are excellent uh, lecturers and uh, authors. So uh, it's it's going to be a, uh, enjoyable uh, seeing you guys again at the festival. Yeah, it should be fun. That's one of the things I like about it. You know, it's sort of laid back and it's fun. You know, you don't want it all to be just very serious. You know, and doom and gloom. <laughs> you want. Uh, to entertain people as well as inform them, you know. Oh yeah, and uh, I, I think everyone has a good time. It's uh, it, it's a really well managed festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the speakers Jeff has are top quality, and and uh, yeah, the vendors are mm-hmm. uh, you know. You know, really trying to make uh, uh, a good impression, you know, restaurants yeah. and, and all that. It, it's really just a, a terrific day out, and you know, we're just glad uh, you're coming to our state to talk about maybe what should be the state bird. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Mark, we're getting real close to the end here, and, and Blog mm-hmm. Talk will shut us off. So, Okay. Uh, and what, what, Barbara, how, how much time do we have? A couple minutes? Is, is there any? Two minutes. Okay. Uh, Nick, is there anything else? Uh, any websites you want to plug? Um, well, I have a blog, which I update most days, called World of Whatever. Um, if, you, if you actually type uh, type Nick Redfern into Google, you'll the link to my blog is actually the first one. Uh, if people want to uh, contact me, the best way is probably Facebook. And um, you know, I'm always pleased to chat with people if they've got questions about an experience or they want advice on something. You know, I'm always happy to do that. I'm not one of these standoffish types. You know, I'm always happy to. You know, I like enjoy hanging out with people at the conferences mm-hmm. and afterwards and whatever. So, uh, yeah, if people want to uh, contact me, that's great. And um, as far as the books are concerned, you, you can buy them all on Amazon, and about 60% you can get off the shelves in um, Barnes & Noble. Okay. Uh, do you have any n- new bands you've been covering any new Ramones information you've written about? <laughs> well, I guess there's not too much new stuff on the Ramones now that they're all gone. But um, yeah, the one thing I am, one band I am looking forward to is um, Doyle, which is named after Doyle, the guitarist in the Misfits, who's got his own band playing now, and they're coming to Dallas in um, in October, so I'll be going to see him then. So uh, that'll be good. Okay, guys, we are done. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 right. is say good, this is say good night Lucy time <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or, or not Lucy Who was it George for Gracie Good night Gracie time <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, 
thank you, Nick, uh, for for being a great guest. Uh, thank you, Barbara, for um, you know, giving give me a chance to uh, collaborate with you again. All My right. Pleasure. Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you, guys, and and good night. And we'll see everybody at the Mothman Festival. All right. Sounds good. You know it. Good night.